This morning, uh, we're finishing our series on Colossians, and uh, to do that, I have to take all of chapter 4 kind of at a go. So it's, there's a lot in here, and uh, you're going to cover the first half of it in your life groups in more depth. And uh, as you're looking in, in Colossians, and you look at chapter 4, you look at the whole letter, in fact, you realize that Paul has kind of an interesting preaching tactic in this letter. He spends almost three whole chapters... Uh, on the pre preeminence of Christ and on the glory of God and on the gospel and he, he puts in some hymn and he, and, he, and he waxes eloquent on it as it should and he's passionate about understanding God. And then at the very end of the letter he tacks on kind of two super short paragraphs of application of all the implications of that great gospel. And it's almost as if Paul wants to say look the important thing disciples, the important thing Christians is that you understand understand and grow in your knowledge of God, then the application will come to you. I don't need to say a lot about application because you're smart people and you'll know how to apply it. And maybe he gives us too much credit, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, we do need to spend a lot of time on connecting the dots. You know, God loves us to such an extent that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. You know, and we know that and we sing that and we relish that, and then, you know, we doubt that, you know, he's going to take care of simple things in our life. You know, so, Paul gives us a lot of credit to be able to apply the gospel, but he, his application is very short. But Paul points us in the right direction. Uh, this week we got, we get one short paragraph on the mission of the church. Um, if you look at the structure of the text in verses 1 to 6, and, and that application is of Paul himself giving himself as an example of a Christian who's engaged in the gospel mission of the church. And then we get a curiously long farewell that gives us a glimpse of the church as a whole in action together. So first part of, the, of chapter 4 is Paul talking about him and his personal application of being a disciple on mission. And then we see a glimpse or a picture of what it looks like when the whole body of Christ is on mission together. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first section. I'm going to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, and I'm just going to sketch out the first six verses and then give you the credit of being wise and intelligent and engaged in working out the application in your life groups. But I'll get you started. And then today we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the final greetings in which Paul, at the end of his letter, lists many friends of his and even former enemies, if you could call them that, and even future disappointments. Uh, and it's not an accidental inclusion. Sometimes we get to the end of some of Paul's letters where he's doing the greetings, and we think, oh, we can just kind of skip these three or four paragraphs because he's talking to people we don't know that lived a long time ago that are related to him. We don't really need this. You know, maybe the Holy Spirit just said, you know, Paul, you finish off the letter on your own or something. No, this is inspired word of God. And so we need to read these verses. The Holy Spirit had Paul write these for a reason, and Paul wrote them for a reason. And, uh, and the reason is, is that we get this glimpse into the church in action. But let's to begin, just first quickly look at the first six verses and, uh, and set you up for your life group discussions and see Paul's example of himself as a disciple who is on kingdom mission. And I'll just pray before we start unpacking that. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to study it together, that we get to sharpen one another with it, encourage one another with it, that 
taught by your Holy Spirit, and I just pray that takes place right now, that your Holy Spirit would speak through your word into our hearts, and it would be transformative, that we would leave different than we came. In Christ's name, amen. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 is where we will start. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, and let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now we know that Jesus after, as he's in his sort of final meeting with his disciples, gives the great commission to the church in Matthew 28 19, to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. So, in other words, the mission to the church is to share the gospel, to make new disciples. And here Paul elaborates on that mission, and in fact he elaborates on that mission in Romans 10, saying, how will anyone call on him in whom they have not believed, and how will they him who may believe in him who may have ever heard, and how will they hear without someone preaching? So in other words, Paul says, so Jesus gave us this mission, how are people going to become disciples unless someone goes and talks to them about it? Somebody's got to share the gospel or else this mission doesn't get accomplished. So obviously our job as a church is eventually to speak the gospel to someone. Someone has to say it for people to hear it and believe it. So these six verses are Paul's kind of description to himself that he's giving as advice to the church of how that mission gets worked out as a person. And it's densely packed. In these six verses, I see seven points. And I'm just going to go through these seven points super quickly to get you started in your life groups and let you unpack them further. But in six verses, Paul gives seven things that are an example of a disciple on a mission of gospel sharing. So the first one is, be steadfast in prayer. This is the main point, likely. Paul emphasizes it more than once. Pray, pray, pray continually while you're on mission for the gospel. The success of our role in the gospel depends on prayer. Jesus depended on prayer. Paul depends on prayer here. We surely depend on prayer as well. Secondly, we see that God opens the doors. We follow the will of God in the gospel. But not even Paul could force the gospel ahead of the movement of God. He tried in Jerusalem, even though he was warned not to go to Jerusalem. He really wanted to go to Jerusalem and preach the gospel. And that's what got him in prison in Rome, was him trying to force the gospel into a place that God had not called him to. So God is the primary actor in the gospel. Even though we do act, we are the means of God's grace in presenting the gospel, he opens the doors for the gospel to go we can anticipate resistance. He says he's in prison. Paul says it's on account of the gospel that he's in prison. And this mission that we are on, given by Jesus, it invokes highly polarized responses, and that's completely normal. So don't be alarmed or discouraged if you're emotionally or politically excited by resistance to the gospel. Stay on mission, even if the mission falls into a prison cell. Fourthly, Paul says, work and pray to make the gospel clear. He says he ought to speak clearly of the gospel. Don't try and be too clever with the gospel or to make it so convoluted and confusing that people 
gospel is simple in the sense that it is uncomplicated. You remember, you remember way back to you know grade school science class, and they taught you simple machines. A simple machine is a lever. It's simple as a fulcrum and a lever. Simple machine. That doesn't mean it's not powerful. Somebody once said, "Give me a long enough lever, and I can move the world." So simple doesn't mean not powerful or profound. It just means the gospel is simple. You don't have to complicate it. There is God. He created man. Man fell. Jesus came to restore and redeem the fall of mankind and save us. That's the gospel. It's simple. It's clear. It's understandable. So keep the gospel clear on your church mission. Fifthly, he says, walk in wisdom with the unchurched, with outsiders. Paul's saying it isn't only what you say, it's how you act. Don't act like a fool. Don't be unkind. Don't be contentious or argumentative. In other words, don't act in a way contrary to the gospel that you're trying to share. So that you don't miss the short opportunity that you have with people. You may only have a short relationship with someone. You don't want that relationship to be an argument over whatever. You want that relationship to be about the gospel. Or at least acting in a way that they find the gospel appealing because you have it. So make the best use of your time so that you don't miss that opportunity with people around you and act with wisdom. And then he gives a specific example. Paul says, be gracious in how you speak. He says, I want you to walk well and I want you to speak well. Be gracious, be kind, don't be contentious or with hostility or sarcasm or trying to win over or win an argument with somebody. And then seven, again, six verses, Paul gives us a lot to think about here. He says, so that we know how to answer each person. Paul says, use your wisdom in how you walk, use your speech in how you speak to know how the gospel applies to each person that you encounter. The gospel is simple, it never changes, but it lands on different people differently. And Paul says, be wise and think about what the hope of the gospel means to the person that you're talking to. Because people need different kinds of hope in different circumstances in life. And the gospel is hope for all circumstances. So Paul wants prayer for himself to make the gospel clear and be gracious and know how each person needs to have the gospel answer provided to them. And if you want more on that and you're in your life groups, you can see 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, where Paul says, I became all things to all people so that I might win some. To the strong I became strong, to the weak I became weak, to those under the laws, not under the laws, those not under the laws, those not under the law, although not under the law of Christ. <laughs> he says, I became all things to all people. That's what he's talking about here. Know how to answer each person with the gospel. So there's a ton of practical application from those seven points to our evangelism. Your Christian walk, your interaction with your friends, your engagement with the culture. You can think about all the different ways you interact with the world, with the media, with your friends, with your co-workers, and apply these seven things to them. But I want to get to the, the second half of chapter 4 and talk about Paul's glimpse into the whole church body together working on mission, not just an individual disciple like these first six verses are talking about. So I'll leave these for you to apply in your life group, and we'll move on to the second half of chapter 4. And as I said, the next section of text, it seems almost like something you skip over, because Paul's talking to these people you don't know really, and it seems they lived at a completely different time, and why would it matter what Paul's greetings are to these people? Well, he moves our sights from a personal application of one disciple on mission to a glimpse of what a band of disciples looks together. 
second point is that you're not doing the gospel mission on your own. And so we have to read this text and see what this looks like when many people are working together. Colossians 4, 7-18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Areopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea, to Nympha, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now the mission of the church that Jesus has given the church and that Paul is on with all of these friends of his is dynamic. There is a lot going on. And it is a crazy group of people who are doing the ministry of the church in the first century. Well, all through history, it's a crazy group of people doing the ministry of the church. Every time I think of the church, every time I think of you guys, and I think of Christians, and I think of a group of believers working together, it always reminds me of these guys. That's the kind of picture that we have painted here of the church. And this is literally what I think of when I think of you guys. I think the rooster is the brains of the operation and is a good representation of Paul himself. Not eloquent, not strong, easily dismissed, but he has a cunning plan. And it's got a gang of misfits behind him that are going to see it through. I don't know what gang that is, but I want to join it. It's awesome. But this is what the church is like. This is the description of the end of Colossians chapter 4, is this picture right here. Paul lists 10 specific people in his greetings, and it's a pretty cool bunch of 10 people. You have uh, Tychicus, um, and he's a frequent companion of Paul, and he has the task of just bringing people up to date on all that Paul is doing, and he does the report to the church, and he's probably an engaging, encouraging speaker. He's the official letter carrier, so he's trustworthy. Paul has this trusted companion that he gives all his writing to and, and entrusts him to give to the church and to report to the church everything that's going on. And then you have Onesimus. This guy's a runaway slave. He's from the city of Colossae. And he ran away before he was a believer and apparently ran into Paul while he was in Rome. And he hears the gospel. He comes to know Christ. And now he's being sent back to Colossae to walk through a very difficult life situation in the fact that he is a runaway slave. He has debt that he owes to his master that he's abandoned, possibly. We learn more about this in Philemon, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Um, 
possibly he stole from him. He owes him some debt that Paul acknowledges. And so now you have this new Christian that says, man, the implication of the gospel is I gotta do some different things in my life, hard things. Like I gotta go back to Philemon. I gotta go back to Colossae and sort out this relationship now that I'm a believer. And he's part of the group, and, and Paul's coaching him, literally discipling him through these hard changes in his life that the gospel brings about. And then there's three Jewish guys. Aristarchus, he's a fellow prisoner of Paul's, meaning that he was probably in prison with Paul, implied that probably for similar reasons. This is his partner in crime, so to speak. Paul and, and uh, Aristarchus are in Rome, like just preaching the gospel and, you know, civil disobedience when you're under a an emperor who thinks he's God <laughs> doesn't like people spreading the news about other gods, and so they end up in prison together. And uh, and so you got him, and then you got Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas, and he's with the group. And Paul sent other instructions about him, and specifically encourages the Colossians to welcome him. He says, when he shows up, make sure you greet him, welcome him in, as though that might be in some kind of doubt. And you may remember that Mark was the source of division between Paul and Barnabas. Paul didn't want to take Mark on his second missionary journey because Mark bailed out on them in the first missionary journey. He said, he's not committed. He's a, he's a failure. You know, I don't want to take Mark with me. But now, here we are years later, apparently Mark and Paul all healed back together. They're doing ministry together in Rome. When Paul sends them to Colossae, he says, don't worry about the past. Whatever you may have heard about Mark, make sure you welcome him when he shows up because he's been restored. So you have this restored failure. And then you have Jesus who, we don't know a lot about him. Except that he called himself Justice, because apparently, you know, that other name was taken at the time. And so he thought, ah, maybe I'm not going to call myself Jesus anymore, I'm going to get a nickname. And so, you know, they call him Justice, just so there's no confusion or appearance of arrogance, I guess. Uh, but he was also a fellow worker with Paul. And so you got Justice. And Paul says these are the only three Jewish people with him in his company, in his ministry circle. The rest of the people that he's with are Gentiles. And you got Epaphras, and we know he's from Colossae, he's one of you, Paul says, and we learned in the first chapter that he brought the gospel to Colossians. He basically planted the church in his hometown, and, uh, and, and, and you hear in this final chapter how much he loves his hometown, how much he loves this church that he planted, he loves his friends in the city of Colossae, and yet he left Colossae to minister with Paul. So here's a guy who loves his hometown, planted a church in his hometown, and then left and went to do ministry with Paul. And then you got Luke, the doctor, an almost constant companion of Paul. Luke, by word count, is the largest author of the New Testament. Does anybody here want to tell me one of the two books that Luke wrote? Anybody? Good. I'm glad somebody got it, or I was going to quit being a Peyton preacher. Um, yes, Luke wrote Luke, okay? So that's that Luke. And he also wrote Acts, and he put Luke and Acts together by word count, and is the bulk of the New Testament. Luke wrote more than anybody else, more than Paul, and more than John, the other two major authors of the New Testament. And if you read a few of Paul's letters and the Acts, you can understand why Paul had a doctor with him a lot of the time. He was beaten, he was set upon by animals, he was robbed, he was imprisoned, he had health issues, he was shipwrecked, you name it, Paul's got a scar for it. And so Luke is a doctor who's following Paul on his missionary journey, basically just patching him up and keeping him going so that he can preach the gospel. 
And uh, he's also the only writer in the New Testament that sort of represents us. I love Luke because it's not clear that Luke ever met Jesus. So as a writer of the New Testament, Luke is a Gentile who heard the gospel presented to him by a disciple or by an apostle, believed in the gospel, came to know Christ, and, and he writes most of the New Testament. And he never even met Jesus. He's like us. I mean, we're 2,000 years later, but we're hearing the gospel the same way Luke did. So you didn't have to be there to have the life of the gospel, the life of Jesus imparted to you. Just like Luke, we are all products of the gospel going forth of that great commission. And then you got Demas, who's currently with Paul, but is shortly going to pull a mark and abandon the ministry out of his love for the world, we learn in 2 Timothy 4.10. So he was not committed to the ministry to the extent that he saw it through with Paul and with Timothy and with Titus and all these other people who saw it through to the end. For his love for the world, he left the ministry. Now, I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean he's not a believer. He just, the, the world distracted him and his mission was kind of cut out from underneath him because he was like, no, this is hard and I want to go back to the life that I had before. So he obviously had a good life before because he wanted to return to it as opposed to continue the ministry of the church. And then Nympha, a woman who has a church in her house who's hosting many Christians, probably has a large house, probably a, a decent landowner, all the Christians in the city of Laodicea or a number of them come and meet in a house church at her place. And Paul wants these churches in Colossae and Laodicea to stay closely connected. And they share letters with each other and they share teaching with each other. And then you have Archippus. He actually lives with Philemon. We know that from Philemon. And, uh, and he has a special task assigned by Paul. And we don't know what that is, but Paul he says, you've got a special job just for you that you need to do in the gospel ministry and the kingdom mission that you're on. Okay, so those are the ten people. What, what's the big deal with all these guys? What's, you know, what, what, is, what are they there for? Well, as I say, I think the picture is pretty encouraging and, and kind of tantalizing and kind of exciting. It's a dynamic ministry that Paul has going on. We often think, even as I read through the New Testament... And I think of Paul, you kind of think of this kind of lone ranger who's out, you know, doing all these amazing heroic things for the faith. And it's scriptures like these that show us Paul was far from alone. Paul was not doing this on his own. Paul had a whole team of people around him that were keeping him patched up and propped up and prayed up and encouraged and fed and transported and carried his letters around and were taking money from place to place. All these different things were going on, and they all had specific things to do in the ministry too, as he speaks of to Archippus. He says, you've got a job you've got to do. I just encourage you to see it through. But it's tantalizing and exciting because of the composition of that team. Even as Paul has been talking about the beauty of the church, of bearing with one another, how there is no slave or free, how there is no Greek or Jew, we have Jews and Romans working together, traveling together, trusting each other with important items and tasks. Remember, Rome is the occupying empire of Israel. Jews had to pay tribute to Roman overseers, but there is neither Jew nor Greek, we learned in Colossians. And so these Christian Jews and Christian Greeks gladly work together. They don't see it as a difficulty. This would be like Ukrainians working with Russians today. Right? 
like it would be kind of awkward and weird to work together closely with the occupying force of your territory. And that's what these guys were doing. There were Greeks and Jews on the team working together gladly. But we have doctors and slaves working together. You couldn't get farther apart on the spectrum of the class and wealth. We have landowners, upper class, middle class, and bond servants working together. Onesimus and Luke have nothing in common. They're two opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're together in fellowship and partnered in ministry. Why? Because we also learn in Colossians, there's neither slave nor free in Christ. We're all together in the body of Christ, equal. We have formerly disgraced members of the mission, like Mark, who's restored the fellowship to faithful ministry. His past failures did not condemn him to being an outcast or being canceled by the Pauline ministry. We bear with one another, forgiving one another. Paul doesn't just preach this stuff, he does this stuff. Even with people who bailed out on him in the middle of a missionary journey, where he's getting robbed and attacked and in prison, and looks around, where's Mark? Gone. How easy would it be for you to forgive somebody? that bailed out on you on a mission like that. Paul forgives Mark, restores him to ministry, tells the Colossians, greet this guy. Don't worry about the past. That's been dealt with. We have people working on and working out their new obedience like Onesimus. They're being held accountable for their behavior. They're being discipled and coached in how to redeem and restore their past life through the gospel and how to work out very difficult circumstances as a Christian is called to do but not as the world expects. And when in a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a little two-week mini-series on Philemon, and we'll talk more about Onesimus and Philemon, and what he had to go back and face because he came to Christ. And this is just practical discipleship taking place. Here, here Paul's got like pinnacles of the faith with him, and he's got these brand new believers that he's like discipling along. We're all in this together. We're all, you know, the church is made up of all kinds of people. And then there's Demas. Even he has a lesson for us. We're going to work with people. We're going to work with a motley crew of fellow believers. Other Christians, some of them have let us down in the past. You look around this room, I look around this room. Maybe some people have let you down in the past. I can guarantee you as you look around this room, some of these people, including me, will let you down in the future. And that's Demas. Right? Paul doesn't know it yet, but Demas is going to bail out on Right? But he's there ministering together, and we have to trust and we have to minister with people, whether they've failed us in the past or they might fail us in the future. This is the crew that God has put together for us to do ministry in Albert. And so this is who we do ministry with. We don't doubt each other. We forgive the past and we let grace cover the future. It's why we must forgive and why we must bear with each other, because we will let each other down. Because stuff is going on all the time in ministry. These guys all together are traveling on mission together. They are getting into and out of prison together. They're falling out with each other. They're reconciling and mending fences with each other. They're praying for each other. They're coaching each other. Discipling each other through crazy life situations. They're patching each other's wounds. They're, they're each playing their specific role. They're not all Luke. Luke's got his skills and his place. They're not all Paul. He's got his skills and his place. You know, 
They're not all Archippuses who has his special job. We don't even know what his special job was, but he's got a special one. They're this motley crew, this bag of mixed nuts that every church and every body of Christians always is. Whenever you run into a bunch of Christians working together, they are a weird bunch of people. And that's what Paul describes at the end of Colossians chapter 4. Just this motley crew of weird guys who are in totally different life situations, but all doing ministry together. Here, here's what they're not. They're not stagnant. They're not focused on the drama. They're not inwardly looking. They're every word, every action is aimed at encouragement and support and reconciliation and pressing on in every circumstance. To see good little churches like Colossae or Laodicea flourish. That's all these guys want to see. That's all that's on Paul's heart. He wants Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis to succeed as churches. To flourish as Christian fellowships. It's also a group of people that you can just sense when you're reading between the lines and based on everything we read elsewhere in the New Testament. All of these guys have lost or given up a lot. They're on the run. They're in prison. They've, been, they've abandoned the life they could have had. I mean, you think about Luke. He's a Gentile doctor. He should have been taking the pulse of wealthy Romans and prescribing olive oil baths and, you know, three wine lunches or something as a way of getting better. He's not supposed to be trudging around after a group of outcasts and barely avoiding prison. Or take Paul. Paul was a high-ranking Pharisee before he became a Christian. By this point in his life, he probably would have been sitting on the high council. He was a student of Gamaliel, one of the most esteemed rabbis of his age. And we know all the details of what he's given up and what he's suffered. Epaphras left his home, the home that he loved, in order to follow Paul. He could have stayed home, but he left. He's coming back now. Nympha opens up her house to the church. Everybody is sacrificing. Everybody is giving up. In Philippians 4.8, Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. But reading this letter and reading these final greetings, all the things that Paul lost, he gained far more. In that verse in Philippians that I just read there, 4.8, he ends it by saying, I count all of them as rubbish, as trash in order to gain Jesus. He says, I've lost all of this, but I've gained Jesus. But not just Jesus, we see that he's gained so much more. Well, not that there's more than Jesus, but he's gained Jesus and everything in this world as well. Jesus' promise to his disciples sounded exactly what Paul and these faithful disciples are experiencing here at the end of chapter 4. Because Jesus promised his disciples, he said in Mark chapter 10, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Like that's almost a perfect description of what Colossians chapter 4 is describing. All these guys have lost a lot. They gave up a lot. Paul says, I've given up everything in order to gain Christ. And Jesus says, you may have to leave your hometown. You may have to leave your family. Your family may turn against you. You may lose your possessions, what you have, what you could have had. But if you lose them in pursuit of the gospel on kingdom mission, I will give it back to you a hundred times. In this world, you will receive it back. With persecution, Jesus says. He's not trying to sell them a bill of goods here. 
He says, you already take the mission and you lose these things for the gospel. You will be persecuted, but you will get all of these things back and then eternal life in the age to come. Throughout the New Testament, roughly 60 different church friends is to, are described by Paul. And those are just the ones that get named. Paul had hundreds. He had thousands of supporters, thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ, nieces and nephews in the faith. In Corinthians, he talks about being a spiritual father to many. James talks about women being spiritual mothers to other women, men being spiritual fathers to younger men. Christian houses are open to each other. The gospel is open to all people. Whatever you give up, you gain a hundred times being part of the kingdom. Paul here describes the people that he ministers with. He says, yeah, I gave up everything for Jesus, but I know they're a motley crew, I know they're a ragtag bunch, but man, these are my brothers and sisters. Whatever my family may think of me, whatever the Pharisees may think of me, whatever the high council thinks of me, whatever my former teacher, Gamaliel, thinks of me, doesn't matter, because i got hundreds of brothers and sisters now. And i got a place to stay, i got houses in every city in the known world. I can stay anywhere, anytime. I don't need my house. God's given me hundreds of houses in the body of Christ. So where does that leave you then? If, if this is what Paul is describing, if this is the body working together, if this is what Jesus promised to his disciples, where does that leave us? We're one of these guys. I'm not sure which one you are, but you're one of these guys. And the point is you have a place in the church. You have a place in gospel mission. Important gospel mission, kingdom mission. Whether you're white collar or blue collar, PhD or high school diploma, academic or craftsman, jock, nerd, whatever, rocker, goth, punk, doesn't matter. Border, biker, ATV or hunter, pacifist, vegan, cat lover, dog lover, toilet paper at the back, toilet paper at the front. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you are. That lamb is definitely toilet paper at the back, I can tell. Right? Like, it doesn't matter. There is a place for you in the church, whatever you are, whoever your family was, whatever qualifications you think you have or think you don't have, it does not matter. Mark was a failure. Amos was going to be one. When Isaac was a slave who ran away, it doesn't matter. You have a place in the church and on kingdom mission. Just like Archippus, there is a special mission just for you. And Paul would encourage you to see it through. Every task in the church takes exactly one person to do. doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is. It takes one person to do the things that need to be done around here. So do your thing, whatever it is. It takes a whole person to do it, no matter what. So there is a place for you. There is also a hope for you. If you need forgiveness, you can find it here. If you need grace, you can find it here. If you need reconciliation, you can find it here. If you need to come home, home is here. If you're lost, you can be found. All of these people needed hope. Onesimus needed hope. Epaphras needed hope. Demas needed hope. Paul needed hope. Luke needed hope. And they found it together in the church on mission together. There's a place for you. There's a hope for you. And there's a purpose for your life. This dynamic kingdom mission is yours. God has given you a purpose in your life. You inherit this mission when you follow Jesus. And it's exciting and it's a little bit dangerous and it's unexpected and it will ask a lot of you. But you are never doing it alone. This band of misfits we described here today, they 
willingness to obey the Spirit of God. And I called this a dynamic mission several times as I spoke here on purpose because they had dynamis, they had the power of God. Luke says in the first few verses of Acts that the disciples were given power, dynamis, when the Holy Spirit came to them. Power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it's a dynamic ministry because it is a powered ministry by the Holy Spirit. And you are invited and you are inherited into that mission and given the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. The same way these guys did. And, and what did these guys do? Well, we're here today, 2,000 years later. They changed history. They changed the course of events. We're 2,000 years away and we are 8,000 kilometers different from Colossae. And we're still reading their words and believing the gospel that they espoused. Believing the gospel in our good little church of Halliburton because these faithful believers had a message and they had this power of the Holy Spirit to change the history of the world. So there is a place in the church for you. There is a hope in the church for you. There is a purpose and a mission in the church for you. You are welcome. You are redeemed. You're needed to fill your role in the gospel witness to the world. And that's what the end of chapter 4 paints for us. It gives us this little tantalizing glimpse into all the stuff that was going on around Paul. You don't change the world on your own. Jesus never expected anybody to change the world on their own. That's why he gave us the church. It was his idea. And we look around, and it looks weird, and it looks crazy. But it works. It's like these guys... I don't know what's going on there, but it's working. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Colossians. Thank you for this study that we got to spend 10 weeks in this letter, just talking about you mainly for most of it, and then secondary, talking about us needing to know you and understand you, and learn the mystery and delve into and build and get rooted in our understanding of you, and then finally in these last couple of messages to really start to apply it, to say, this is us, this is the church, this was meant, this letter was written to us by your Holy Spirit. We are this good little church that got its roots in the gospel, and we are growing up in the knowledge of you, and we are on kingdom mission, and we look around and there are people that have failed us, people that will fail us, people that are different, race, ethnicity, class, everything. But we're on this team, we're in this gang together to change the world. And all you've given us is Halliburton. <laughs> Not even the world. I mean, we just, we just have Halliburton right here outside our door. So, Father, give us courage to be encouraged by what we read in your word and by the ministry and the example of Paul and all of his friends. That we, too, would not be distracted by anything, but would be just restored, renewed in the energy, the dynamis, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and to relish and to look forward and be excited that we get to do ministry with each other. Not on our own, not out there, you know, 